we want to pick up where we left off, and Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is where we will begin today. So the last few weeks we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, a somber book, I hope. Uh, it, it's been a, a, an appropriate way as we prepare to celebrate Easter in April. Uh, this is a good way for us to begin to kind of set our heads toward the resurrection and begin to, com- as, as the history of the church has kind of done, uh, we begin to really reflect upon our frailty, our, our own weakness, our own sinfulness in a season that, that we would call Lent. That is, that there's a moment where when, when we set our sight on, on the death of Christ on the cross, we begin to realize what it is that He actually has accomplished. And there's no place to begin to contemplate uh, your own weakness, frailty, or you know, meaninglessness in this life better than Ecclesiastes. You see, Ecclesiastes is one of five books of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, a place where we would see the gospel in seed form back in the Old Testament. We begin to see the good news of what Jesus has accomplished in its seed form here in Ecclesiastes, and, and it's the reflection of a man who got everything he, want, everything he wanted. So the, the book of Job is a wisdom literature book in which a man reflects and gains wisdom upon losing everything that he wanted, everything that he valued. Whereas Ecclesiastes, the story of King Solomon reflecting on his own life, is a way we gain wisdom by reflecting on what happens in the despair that comes when you get everything that you wished for. And come to find that life under the sun, as we've been saying over and over and over again, life under the sun, this phrase you'll hear even this week over and over and over again, under the sun, apart from God, life is poof. It's meaningless. It's futile. To look for joy apart from God, and this life with your own five senses is like chasing the wind. So if you're in this room, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe, uh, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer in Christ or a follower of Christ. I'm really glad you're here, and I, I want to show you what it is that we do on a regular basis. We, we open the Bible, and we begin to see the truth there and the ways that it points our attention toward what God has done for us finally and completely in Jesus Christ. I, I, don't, want you to, 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 I don't want you to be like caught off guard. I don't want to soft sell this, but there's, there's a sense in which this book is inviting you and me into a temporary or momentary despair and if you are currently trying to find your identity or hope or or sense of satisfaction or contentment and anything other than what God has granted to us in Jesus then your ultimate end is depression to put your hope or trust in anything apart from what God has done for us in Christ is a chasing of the wind it's futility And we are called in this moment as we begin to read this, we we begin to consider the possibility that the things that we are currently putting our hope and effort and energy into, the things we're hoping will give us a sense of satisfaction will never fully satisfy us. So I don't want you to be caught off guard. I don't want you to be like, uh, at the end of this, you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Wow, he he told me that I was... uh, He was spending all this time and energy worshiping things that are not God, and now he wants me to worship and follow Jesus. And if if we don't do that faithfully, then I believe I've misrepresented the gospel, I've misrepresented the teaching of the scripture, and misrepresented what it means to be a Christian, to fully and completely, above all else, find our hope in what God has done for us in Jesus. And what I think you'll find when that comes to full bloom as we celebrate on Easter, when Jesus walks out of the grave, you find it in seed form in chapter 8, at the very least, beginning in verse 1. So let's read that together. Remember, as usual, right? You're feeling good? Feeling feeling great? Happy? All right. Let's fix that. Here we go. 
Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, or who can tell him how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. As we begin to contemplate what it is to know joy in the eternal things of God by letting go of the ephemeral things of this world, we gain wisdom. We gain wisdom by seeing the infinite divide between the works of God and the works of human beings. Such that as we gather this wisdom, we find the wisdom that comes from God allows a person to resist being hardened by corruption, injustice, and evil. So he begins with this picture in verse 1 that wisdom will make a face to shine and it will soften the hardness of the face. So the hardening that happens in this world 
is ultimately resisted by gaining wisdom by looking to God. He begins by asking a question, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Who really knows what God is doing? Who really knows the mysteries of the world? You solve one equation, you answer one question, and it seems to leave at least two or three more. You know a, a thing a little bit more deeply, and it seems to raise more questions. Right? The Hubble telescope shoots just a little deeper into the infiniteness of space, and the questions don't get smaller, they get bigger. The, the mysteries don't shrink, they get greater. And who really can answer every single question? Who can interpret every single thing? Who can explain it all away other than God? Such that now we actually, when we consider that a thing cannot be known, we are actually asserting something that can. So, so remember where we started this. It, it, it's kind of an irony to begin. Uh, he says that everything is meaningless to begin this book. And then over and over and over again, as you saw here, things are all meaningless. But that's ironic, isn't it? To say that everything is meaningless is to assert something that's profoundly meaningful. Right? To, to say that all things are worthless is to propose something of great worth. To say that everything is futile under the sun is to assert something that's not futile, that might have a more lasting effect, a more substantive reality. So even to contemplate the fact that you don't know a thing is to know something. Here's why this is important. For all you know-it-alls in the room, you know who you are. For all you that, that have to have control and understanding over every single thing, I want you to maybe consider the possibility that there's a weight that can be lifted from your shoulder here, okay? You don't have to know everything. And in fact, one of the greatest things you can know is that there is a limited nature to your knowing. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? In fact, what we see here, the correlation that we'll kind of dig through for the rest of this chapter, there's apparently a correlation between like the shining of a person's face, that is like their demeanor and their manner, and then it says the hardness of their face. Just, just proposing this, if this is true, some of you know-it-alls who have to have the answer to every single question, you are scaring people off. And your face, according to this passage, is very dark and very hard. And to gain wisdom in the possibility that God has the answer to questions and you do not might actually begin to protect you from that hardening. And as he lists for this chapter, the corruption, the injustice, and the evil that we experience in this life. So we begin to contemplate the possibility that wisdom that comes from God is, is something that will allow us to begin to understand things better, hold on more tightly to the things that are of God, and hold on more loosely to the things that are not. And what happens after this is a reflection of authority, and then it's a reflection of evil and the power and sovereignty of God. So let's begin in verse 2. This first section from 2 through 9 is this reflection upon authority, this idea of uh, politics even. There's this kind of uh, a concept of what it means to really understand authority and to begin to contemplate something powerful. So I want to begin to undermine, and when we think about authority, and when we think about, the word here is theodicy, I want to undermine some prevailing themes that 
that I think are hopefully shattered at least a little bit in this particular chapter. So we'll, we'll consider first authority and then theodicy. The, the word here, you don't have to remember the word. I don't care that you expand your vocabulary, but I do care that you think about what it means. That is that theodicy, as it's understood, is a vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. This is profound, and if you're, if you're honest with yourself, you probably find yourself asking the same kinds of questions that Solomon does. How can there be a God given that there is fill in the blank? If this exists, if this tragedy exists, how can there be a good God? How can I believe that there's a good God that's sovereign over all things when the things that I look at seem so evil and corrupt? And that's the question that I want to encourage you with. Ecclesiastes gives us the language to ask. I I hope this was encouraging for you the last few weeks, like, when I first read the Bible as like an angry teenager, I did it out of spite. I wanted to like prove somebody wrong. Uh, and when I got to like the words of it, Lamentations or even some of the Psalms or even like Ecclesiastes, and it's like this deep, like dark, these, these dark things, right? I was under the impression like you just opened the Bible to make you happy. Um, and, and, and there was a, 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 a real refreshment when I found out like that the Bible actually has language for despair and sorrow, right? I remember the first time I read it, I was kind of like looking over my shoulder like, Am I supposed, it was like I was reading something I wasn't supposed to, like, is this meaningless? I, I don't know, is, am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to be reading this? And I, I want to give you a word of encouragement here, like, that, that's a thing, that's okay, the life of faith involves doubt. Don't, don't despair over it, but consider it deeply. We have language to consider the meaninglessness and despair of life. God's not afraid of this question. When you ask things like, how can this be if God, you are so good? You're asking a good question, which is tackled in the Proverbs, it's tackled in the book of Job, and it's tackled here and elsewhere. Seems mysterious. We might think, use biblical language, that God is slow. That God is out there or up there, but he's not with us and for us. And we're invited to consider something different. So we really begin to weigh out what it means to think of the goodness and sovereignty of God versus the existence of evil in the world. Is it possible that God is so good, so powerful, that he even covers the evil, the wickedness? Because what you'll find in our current culture is a, I'll I'll paraphrase here, I'll use a word that might be helpful or not, maybe distracting, But what you kind of see in our own culture is a a picture of an Eastern thing called karma. So Eastern religions would believe in this this nebulous power or influence that's kind of like managing the the good and evil in balance in the world. And and if you do good, you store up good karma and get good things. You do bad, you store up bad things and and, and bad stuff happens to you. And there's there's this kind of balance that, that exists and and, and you should do good to have good things happen to you. Don't do bad things or bad things will happen to you. And here's what I want, to, I want you to consider as we weigh the good and the bad here in this chapter and throughout this book. I want to push back on this idea. And you'll say, well, I'm not, I'm not a Buddhist. I don't, I don't believe in karma. Maybe not, but even some of the most, uh, most influential monotheistic religions weigh in on this with their own form of karma. That is, if you're obedient you will please God. If you will submit to God, follow His steps, whether it's 5, 10, 12, some magical number of things you're supposed to do, and if you will do them, you will be storing up favor from God. And that might be, that might be a, a highly religious way of talking about it, but it's still karma. And I want you to consider 
the possibility that karma is the anti-gospel. You cannot believe in karma and Jesus at the same time. You cannot believe that good people get good things and believe that Jesus is who he says he is at the same time. You cannot believe that bad people get bad things alone and believe that Jesus is who he says he is at the same time. And we begin to consider the possibility that he is reflecting on a broken and sinful and fallen world here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We see the seed of the gospel. Did you catch that? Bad things happen. Sometimes this is two chapters in a row. We saw this last week. The righteous person has bad things happen to them. The wicked person lives a long life. So don't pursue righteousness or wickedness in and of itself. But we see here this again. There's this picture of sometimes it's out of sorts. And what I would argue and we'll land on in a minute is that that is a good place to be to hear the good news of Jesus. You ask, why do bad things happen to good people? What I would push back on is maybe you don't understand what is and is not good. And I want to propose something to you. There's only one time in the world where a bad thing happened to a good person. And that was when the Son of God, perfect and spotless and sinless, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for you and for me. Every other time that something bad has happened to a person, it happened to a sinful person. It happened to a rebellious person. It happened to a person whose heart is turned away from God. Now that will hurt for a minute, but hang with me. It will hurt for a moment, but if you'll just stay with me, something good will happen. So there's this authority that begins to illustrate this brokenness. So he says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. This is a, an Old Testament tradition from the beginning of, of the king of Israel that would have been probably this man's father, David. You can look at 2 Samuel if you want, and you'll see that God swears an oath. God swears an oath to his king, his person to lead these people. He's not perfect, but he's saying, you will for me and my people dispense the authority I have entrusted to you. So you see that in verse 2, the, the, the court, not just maybe even the king, but the king's court is bound by an oath. Secondly, you see that to abandon one's place before the king is in fact to abandon influence before the king. If you rebel against the king, well then the king no longer can do anything for you. Thirdly, you see that ultimately the king has been given a power that maybe you don't have. And you can't simply correct the king. You can't simply just make the king do your will. And lastly, in this little section, you see that the one who continues to work patiently for good causes, apparently, will be the one that's ultimately recognized by the king. And in him you will see manifest wisdom. He says, keep the king's command. Now, here's, this is where it's difficult. Uh, this is where it's, it's really tricky. My concern here is that there's no place for us to gain wisdom in these words. Uh, my concern here is that in our own culture, we have such a low view of authority that there's really no room for us to gain any wisdom from these words. That is, we have currently created and embraced a mindset that makes it almost impossible to gain wisdom from swearing allegiance to a king or to an authority and then obeying it. In fact, I would argue we live in a culture that's kind of built on the opposite. Right? It's, it's built on the opposite. Postmodernism, it's not new, but the idea that the question overrules the answer and you can just ask questions and that is an answer is nothing new. His name was Pontius Pilate. He invented it. 
But even before that, this idea that you can undermine authority and have anything left to stand on is not a new idea either. Something, the kind of rebellion that's happened from the beginning of the story to the end. Read the Bible. You see a bunch of people who rebel against God, who push back his ordinances and throw off his authority. But we're in a really tricky place, right? One of my favorite is Patrick Henry, right? Founding member of, a, you know, of our great country. And he says famously, give me liberty or give me death. Did you catch that? I would rather die than do what you tell me to do. I would rather you kill me than for me to, su- uh, to submit to your authority. Did you catch this? Is it just, does this resonate with you? I mean, part of like some of you, like America, right? Like part of you should be like, yeah, right? Throw off King George. Who cares about that guy? This is in us. But I, I'm, I'm afraid that, I'm afraid that we have undermined and rebelled against authority in our own culture, in our own hearts, in our own minds, that, that, that this seems foreign and we can't even gain wisdom from it. And so if I were to read Romans 13 to you, Paul tells this, this group of people, a church in Rome, in the center of the political power of that time in the whole world, he says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there's no authority except that which is from God. And those authorities that do exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, to conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his, that is the authority's, approval. For he is God's servant for your good. And you will receive his approval. For he is, or excuse me, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He apparently bears the sword with a borrowed authority from God, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of the conscience. Jesus tackled this headlong, right? They try, the Pharisees tried to trick him, and they say, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes? That is, should we submit to authority if that authority is corrupt? And Jesus masterfully responds. You remember this? He, he says, hand me, hand me your coin. Hand me the, the official uh, currency of, of Rome. And he, and he takes it, and he says, whose face is on this? And they say, it's Caesar's face is on this. He kind of institutes the value of these things, and he says, then you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and you give to God that which is God's. You give to Caesar what is owed, but you give to God what is owed to him alone. As if to say the things aren't in conflict. Now we live in a broken, fallen world such that authority can be abused, it can be misused, it is always used to oppress. Systemic Justice, systemic depravity should never surprise us. It should always be expected. We even saw it two different times in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, don't be surprised. When you see corruption in in political structures, don't be surprised. This is the way this works. But it seems here that God has loaned authority to the government. God has loaned authority to people to demonstrate something about himself. Now, this will blow your mind. God can be glorified even when authority 
is used to oppress. Because God is either glorified by, by the joy and good that comes from a good leader, or God is glorified by the example of what happens to poor leadership. It rises and falls. The next empire comes. Steam rolls and takes over. It rises and falls. Every single time. Now this is bizarre. Like, we would say here, I think we've kind of built massive structures in our own culture and our own minds that allow us to listen and learn and gather information from places, but yet we are still under no obligation to obey them. Now, this is tricky, because the only way to like point this out is if Romans 13 is right, and God has instituted and sent authority, and it's for your good, this is, this is what this means, right? And, and I, I have to do this in a, a, a few different ways to kind of catch this, but Donald Trump was sent by God for your good. Over here. Barack Obama was sent by God for your good. Whatever, whatever ticks you off, I don't know. George W., George Sr., what, Bill Clinton, he was sent by God for your good. Was he God? Was he Jesus? Was this leader Jesus himself? No, absolutely not. A broken, fallen world with broken, fallen people running it. And yet there is something that we can see, especially in a place like, like our current culture that's so divided about authority. We can begin to see, is it possible that God is greater, God is bigger, God is doing something here? Is it possible that those structures might be at least an image of what is good in God's alignment, God's care and his sovereignty? So when he tells us in verse 2 through 9 that when we come before the king and submit to this authority and gain wisdom from it, I just want to warn you, I know that sounds crazy. But I want you to realize this is exactly what Jesus has. Because if if we just see that we have our own autonomy, our own authority, then we're actually missing out on the gospel. You see, the good news of what Jesus brings is a new kingdom with a new king, a new authority. And if we're not careful, we'll imagine authority in and of ourselves in such a way that is void of either correction or love. Most people have no problem thinking that Jesus is a good teacher. Thanks, Jesus. For all the stuff you gave me, it's great. I'm going to try to do that. And then they paraphrase some poor example of what Jesus actually did. And then they like to think of him as a teacher, but they don't like to think of him as a ruler. And they don't like to think of him as God. And when he comes along and says, even to the Pharisees, oh yeah, that, that, that fulfillment of the prophecy that God will come to dwell amongst his people, it's me. Hi, I'm here. Drops the mic and sits down. And so, here's why I would push on you. You might be in a spot where you don't have the ability to gain wisdom from this. So think of it this way. If you like to learn from a teacher, but you don't like to obey a teacher, then there's a clear difference, isn't there? And if, and if there's a way that there is teaching that doesn't make room for correction, then you might be missing out. In fact, your knowledge might be puffing up. But it should be visible not only to learn from authority, but to submit to it. I say that because evidently there's a wisdom to be gained and I don't want you to be fools. Secondly, this means that if we begin to understand, we've covered this before, if we begin to understand God's care for us through authority that he's loaned to people, imperfectly, obviously, they're fallen people. If we miss this, then we'll miss out on God's care and love. We've covered this before, but like we've kind of 
we've created a, a concept of love um, in, in our current culture that is, it's, it's purely either romance or emotion. And, and it leaves no room for actual love in which there's correction, care, and guidance. And so we've kind of created this thing where if I stand up here and tell you you're wrong, I don't love you. Right? Like, you're, you, you're a sinner and you need God's grace. And there's part of you that goes like, he's mean. He does not love me. And, and friend, I, I would just push on that. That is, that is a new that is a new and pagan view of love. That's a, naked, that's a naked little boy floating around with wings shooting people with arrows like a crazy person. Okay? That's, that's this view of love. But real love, real love is that when my daughter runs toward traffic, I stop her. And if I have to yell at her to get her attention, if I have to tackle her, I will do that. Not because I hate her, not because I want to harm her, but because I love her enough to know what's best for her. And so here's why I'm, I'm worried that our concept of love and concept of learning and education has not made room for us to gather wisdom from these verses where we see that, look, if you rebel against authority, you, you get the punishment. There is wisdom in knowing that God has placed authority over us. There's wisdom in knowing that God might have put people over you for your good, for your benefit. So here's the way I would test that. Are there people above you that you both love and love God for? If not, then you functionally believe you are God. You functionally believe that you are in control of the universe. Okay, fine. But that power is for someone's hurt, we hear in verse 9. And that power wielded by you without any submission to a greater authority and sovereignty of God will destroy you and destroy others. Every single evil dictator thinks he's saving the world from the last evil dictator. Every single one. And what we come to find out here, there's a wisdom to be gained from authority. So the second thing we see in verse 10 is there's also a kind of a, a wisdom to be gained in, in the way we understand religiosity. So beginning in verse 10, you say, then I saw the wicked person buried. So there's a, there's a person who's wicked, right? We don't know who this person is, but they're, they're wicked. And so now we're supposed to get a picture of a wicked person, right? And so you're supposed to start thinking of like awful, evil people, people who do terrible things. And he gives us a picture of what wickedness really looks like. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they had done these, such these evil things. This is vanity. So when he paints a picture of an evil person, a wicked person, he paints a picture of a highly religious person. A religious person who, when everyone's looking at his religiosity, thinks surely this person is doing it right. Did you catch that? The foolish one here, the wicked one here, he went to church, the, the holy place. He was praised in the city. And then, even if his wicked is exposed, we find out that the compensation, the, the, the consequences of his evil are slow to come to pass. So there's a few things here. This means that, just to push on this, if if you look a certain way around other people who you want to oppress that are religious, beware. Here's what I would argue. Um, the 90 minutes we get together on a Sunday, this is just, 
they're probably the least important 90 minutes of the entire week. I mean, this is like a pep rally. This is where we look to Christ, are renewed in our joy for Christ. But do you know when this is really going to come under attack? Not now. Not here. Not in the, as religious people would call, the holy place. It's in the city. It's in life. You're probably, maybe, I mean, I could be wrong, you're probably not like deeply tempted to sin and rebel against God right now, okay? If so, like, whoa, okay. You really, when it says that there's, there's what is like, there's, a, a wick, there's wickedness in the heart of all people, like the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil, okay, that's you, it's good, we, li- we have a good ending to this story. It's, but, this, if, if you have no problem sinning or rebelling or, or lusting or having greed or pride now, okay, good for you, the place where you're more likely to experience that is elsewhere. So the problem is, is who you are now, right? I love you're beautiful. I love you, okay? Like, if who you are now, like, you're sitting there and you're just, oh, the Bible, ooh, that's a good one. That, mm, that was a good one, right? How much does that look like who you are the rest of the week? How often are you seeping like like letting god's word seep into you and oh that whoa wisdom thank you god for i mean like how often does that happen and we did something countercultural, right we sang songs and it wasn't a soccer game right we sang songs to glorify jesus so again does that look a lot like the way you look the rest of the week or is this like a i don't know is this more like halloween you dress up pretend you're something you're not and then spend the rest of your life being who you actually are because we ought to gain wisdom and caution here. The wickedness here that the person sees buried is a person who used to do all the things in the holy place and even in the city that ultimately defied his own sense of good. So this gives us a few options. I think, first of all, this gives us a freedom to understand that human beings are flawed, that naturally because of sin we are disintegrated, integrity and authenticity is something that's always going to be difficult for us because we will always want to be duplicitous. We will always feel the tug of our identities. Now it's toward one thing. Later when you're hanging out with someone else, it'll be towards that. When you're with this group of people, it'll be towards that. When, when you're in this job and role, it'll be towards this. This is natural for us to experience the tug of these influences on us. And this means that we can have grace toward people who are flawed, even our heroes. Even the person that's praised in the city and even the person that does all the right stuff in the holy place is deeply flawed. And this gives us a lot of freedom. This gives us a ton of freedom. Rather than to judge them for their flaws, to learn from them, gain wisdom, and begin to repent and look elsewhere, right? So this is like Martin Luther, okay? Deeply anti-Semitic person said a bunch of awful things about the Jews, father of, 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 the, of a movement to regain the gospel from the scripture, but I don't know, kind of, that's kind of crooked. Here's a, here's a more recent one, okay? Just Google Dr. Seuss propaganda, okay? Recently, the public school celebrated Dr. Seuss in all his glory. Will not eat him, Sam I am, all that good stuff, right? But he had a, a moment where he uses illustrations to, to demonize people and whole racist and ethnophobic kinds of illustrations he used to fuel the war effort against the Germans and the Japanese. Google it. So here's the thing. We learn. We don't sit back and judge and throw out everything that's 
Oh, well, this person clearly was a sinner, so therefore they are no use to us. Let's go find another not sinner. Friend, you're going to keep doing that until you look to the one who is, and that's Jesus. So we get to learn. Even our heroes, we get to allow them. They're sinners in need of God's grace. Right? John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, by all accounts of their, their their own remarks, they were terrible husbands. Karl Barth, one of the most important influential theologians of the 20th century, had this really awful affair with his mistress who was also his writing assistant. We get to show some grace, and rather than throw them out and dismiss everything they say, we begin to stop, realize they're sinners just like us, and God can use them to be glorified just the same. Because the second thing, after we realize people are flawed, even the heroes... Then, then we get to don't only judge person, a person by their religious practices, right? So just how about we just be the wise kind of people who see through, uh, who see through the stuff that people throw at us, right? Um, oh, praise Jesus. Oh, pray, like, okay, I mean, yes, indeed, praise Jesus, but what's, like, what's really going on? Like, seriously, how are you doing? I'm fine. Okay, that's, I mean, cool, I know you'll say that because you're supposed to, but, but how about really? You see, it seems that godly wisdom actually begins to allow us to see God for who he is. He uses people, even for religious purposes. His ways are not thwarted. But if our faith is in them and in those heroes, then evidently, according to verse 10, it's vanity. And even the consequence that we wish would happen to the evil comes slow. So then we've kind of looked at, I think, the way that, the, at least I would say, the, the seeds of the gospel we see through authority, the seeds of the gospel we see through a false religiosity, and now we see this, this dichotomy of good things happening to bad people. Beginning in verse 14, we'll land there. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. So did you get that? There are good people who do righteous things, and yet bad things happen that the wicked people deserve. And then it says that there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And he says this is vanity. He's incredibly frustrated by this, right? Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. Sometimes the enemy gets away. Sometimes the, the thief runs off with the stuff. And here's what I would... Here's what I want you to see. You see, I thought when I would come, uh, most people think when when you come to Christ, that the vanity will go away. But but there's something else. The wisdom that comes from God, when God allows a person, like I think here, to resist corruption and justice and evil, looks like this. Whenever you can recognize the unfairness and brokenness of the world, then you are able then to recognize the genuine article. Solomon is hungry for this. And he sees a good person to whom bad things are done, and he sees bad person to whom good things are done, such that he says we just need to enjoy the gifts of God the best we can, because in the end, this is what continues to happen. And he's hungry for a solution. Friends, it turns out that God doesn't just want to remove the vanity of the world it turns out that God actually can use the vanity, the ways of the wickedness under the sun to achieve his purpose. I mean, you thought God would show up and then get the reward for being righteous in Jesus, right? And throw a party, Jesus is king forever and ever and ever. That's what the disciples thought. 
That's what the Pharisees expected of God. God's going to come, and everything's going to be made right. And it's going to look exactly like we think. But we were wrong. I want you to see this. You see, as we contemplate a righteous person absorbing the deeds of the wicked, we find out that Jesus didn't come so that he could be treated according to the deeds of the righteous. He came so that you could. Don't miss the gospel in this, this cry of despair. He's like, don't you hate it when bad things happen to good people? Don't you hate it when good things happen to bad people that don't deserve it? It's right there in the text. Because there is one who was righteous, and he was treated according to the deeds of the wicked, so that the wicked might be treated according to the deeds of the righteous. And that guy's name is Jesus. We quote this all the time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it this way, that for our sake, he that is God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Did you get that? To, to receive the, the deeds of the unrighteous, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we who are unrighteous and wicked might become the righteousness of God. I don't want you to hate that the world is this way. I want you to start to love it. I want you to start to love that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. I want you to start to love it because I want you to see that in it is our salvation. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking like, why would, why would I believe in a God that would allow bad things happen to good people? This is the answer. It's very clear. So that good things could happen to bad people like you and me. He has allowed for the most awful of things to happen to Jesus so that only good things would happen to you and to me. Don't miss this. The fact that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people is actually the best news on earth. It's the best news. The fact that one day a man who was perfect and righteous was abandoned by the people he was supposed to be able to depend on he was betrayed by his best friends. The man who deserved loyalty, the man who deserved respect, the man who deserved love and care was cast out to die among thieves. And the worst possible thing that could have happened to a person happened to the best possible person. And that for us is the greatest news on the planet. So that all the good things that Jesus deserved he swapped in exchange to give to us. The fact that the awful things, the most awful things in the whole world happen to a good person, namely Jesus, is the best news in the world so that I get to tell you that good things will happen even to unrighteous, even to sinful and rebellious people like you and like me. It's not an accident. In a moment here, we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, and I don't want you to miss it. I can't have you miss it. Don't miss the gospel in baptism. And don't miss it in the Lord's Supper. He gets the death so that we get the life. He goes under into the depths of death, of despair, of abandonment from the Father so that you and I would know the adoption and love and care of the Father. And we're not afraid of drowning in baptism such that now we're not even afraid to go into the grave because we'll know we'll come out victoriously with Jesus.
Don't miss it. It's good news. It's right there. It's there for you to see. There's also good news. In a moment here, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and someone's going to offer you a piece of bread, and they're going to declare good news over your life. And they're going to say, the body of Christ that was broken for you, I want you to know what they should say. They should say, this should be you. This should be your body broken for your sin. But they don't. They don't. They tell you he gets the death so that you get the life. And we're literally sustained. We're literally sustained. Like we eat, I mean, it's a little bite. Don't, I mean, you're not going to like fill up on it. But like we're literally, like physically, we are nourished by what represents his death. And in some small way, a little piece of bread gives us life to point to the infinite way in which his death grants us eternal life. And someone will say, and you'll, you'll dip the bread into the juice, and they'll say, this is the blood of Christ which was shed for you, poured out for you. The blood that should have been yours was not. In fact, it was his. He gets the death so that we get the life. He is the righteous one who was treated according to the deeds of the wicked so that the wicked ones, by God's grace, would be treated according to the ways of the righteous. So here's what we'll do. Um, those who hunger for good news will be satisfied mysteriously by a little piece of bread dipped into a little bit of juice. Those, hunger, those who hunger and thirst for good news will be satisfied. So if you're a believer, this is for you, as we declare this together. If, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, don't, don't feel pressured to participate. This is just, it wouldn't mean anything to you. We're celebrating the goodness of God in Jesus, and it wouldn't do any good for you. And so I want to begin to read to you the way that we prepare every single time. As the Apostle Paul prepared the church at Corinth, he's, they were doing it wrong. They weren't focusing on the gospel, but he says, I've received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, we, he also took the cup, and after the supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant that is now in my blood. So do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of, of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim that he gets the death so that we get the life. But he gives a warning. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So therefore let a person examine himself then so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray in just a moment here. I'm going to take up an offering, and in that moment, we're going to reflect. We're going to take this seriously. We're going to actually discern the body and the blood of the Lord. We're actually going to reflect upon what it is that God has done for us in Jesus. And then... If this is the right thing, if believing in Jesus and celebrating this right for you is right, to represent your communion between yourself and God and your communion with, with the other people in this church and other believers, then this, this is something I want to invite you to do. But it might be the case that rather than to drink and toast to the victory of Jesus, if you can't do that, then, then, then refrain. Maybe the courageous thing for you to do will be to sing, share the gospel and song with us. But I would, I would urge you, don't, don't say cheers to your own condemnation. And so you'll see, 
over to this side of the room when we, when we begin to take this. There's a gluten-free option. You can ask for that. would hate the gluten for gluten to get in the way of you celebrating the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we begin to discern the righteous one of God who was treated like the evil one, we begin to celebrate that the evil ones get welcomed into the family of God like the righteous. Let's pray together and thank God for this. God, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the grace that you've demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ so that now there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. Uh, There is also now no wandering because you've promised to keep us and hold us fast. So as we celebrate this gospel, for some of us, may it be the call back, maybe be the reminder of what Christ has paid for us. There's no mystery anymore, whether God is up there or out there, but we celebrate the good news is that Jesus has come to demonstrate the presence of God fully and finally for us. So in a moment here, we want to celebrate, and we want to to declare this good news over one another, that the body and the blood of Christ broken and shed for us, is sufficient. It covers the sin, it grants the unrighteous pardon, and it grants the rebellious the ability to celebrate like family with God the Father. So if there's some of us that maybe right now there's just the weight of a burden, the weight of, maybe the weight of sin, maybe some secret hidden sin, maybe there's the weight of guilt, maybe it's just the, the truth that we've put anything that we can find in our hands above you, Lord, would you begin to call us to declare with confidence that ultimately the price has been paid, the sacrifice is finally done. All that is left for us now is to receive the gift, to rejoice in your goodness. And where there once was sorrow, Solomon tells us, there is now gladness. Uh, Let that be the good news we celebrate in Jesus' name. Amen.